Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be back in Matthew. Final three chapters. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. Now these verses, they are the introduction to everything that is going to take place in the final chapters of the book of Matthew, namely, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle's commentary on Matthew, he reaches this chapter and takes pause. And he takes pause so he can remind the reader of just where it is he's about to go. He says, this is a portion of Scripture which ought to be read with a peculiar reverence and attention. He's absolutely right. What follows this brief introduction is the fulfillment of thousands and thousands of years of prophecy and divine planning. The promise that... Uh, the promises that God gave throughout all of the Old Testament, and you can think of them in your head maybe, but all of them are about to be fulfilled and accomplished. The seed of the woman is about to bruise the head of the snake. The final sacrifice is about to be offered. The Passover lamb, not from the flock of Israelites brought into their home, but the true lamb of God from His own home in heaven will be slain. And Christ will become like the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness. He will be the one who takes away the sin of the world. He will become the scapegoat. The ark of deliverance. The Father is about to unveil that great mystery of how He will be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. And He will do it by the betrayal, by the cursing, by the degrading, and by the bloodied sacrifice of His own Son. We will do well if our hearts tread lightly from here. In two days, from the beginning of Matthew 26, in two days, the three years of Jesus' ministry is going to be over. And so will be the 700-year wait for the King of David to ascend His throne. And so will be the 1,400-year wait for the prophet of Moses to come and deliver His people once and for all. And so will the 2,000-year wait since God told Abraham that He would provide the fulfillment of, of the ages, the pinnacle of history. The, the point where all of the, every human being, every, every one of God's people who came before looked forward to this event, and all of us and every other human being who's ever lived is going to look back on it for all of eternity, and it's about to take place. And so if the priests, if they tremble to enter into the Holy of Holies where they would go one time a year and not without blood, our hearts ought to maintain the utmost alertness and reverence as we enter into a temple far greater than the one made with human hands. It begins in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Lord, this is Your Word and not the words of men. You have given them to us for our everlasting good and Your eternal glory that You would be magnified by them and that we would be strengthened and transformed through them. 
And so I pray as we look to Your Word this afternoon, You would renew our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. That the love You have shown through Him would lead the wandering back, the lost to repentance, and Your own children into a greater appreciation, love, and sacrifice in Your name. Lord, help me to preach and help us all to hear. Please, Lord, now come and bless the preaching of Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a difference we find here in verses 1 and 2 from Jesus' preaching in chapters 23, 24, and 25. In those chapters, He stepped out into the public light as the King and the champion of God. He pronounced woes upon the Pharisees, calling their hypocrisy to account. He prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and of all of His enemies. He prepared His disciples for the difficulties the fledgling church would face. He assured them of His second coming, that He's going to come back. Then He warned them and admonished them repeatedly to be ready. And He ends with a promise to judge the living and the dead. His might and magnificence, His divine power, it was on full display as He spoke about Himself as, as the judge, the Son of Man, sitting on the great white throne. At His feet, He gave the picture of all of the nations gathered together to be sorted and judged. And how does He conclude all of this? All at once, and entirely unexpected, he goes on to speak of his betrayal, of his being handed over, and of his crucifixion. He reminds the disciples of why he came. Not to destroy, not to judge, at least not this time, not in this first coming, not to serve, Oh, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. In two days, the Passover will come and He will be delivered up to be crucified. This is what the disciples hear with the pronouncements of His coming in glory still ringing in their ears, lest they begin to uh, misunderstand why He came. The Lord will suffer. He will be handed over and He will die at the hands of ruthless, lawless men. Contrast this with verses 3, 4, and 5. We shift from Jesus and His disciples to the chamber of the high priest. His name is Caiaphas. Now before we, we go any further, I want to pause at this point because very often here, devious people have raised an objection about the reliability of Scripture. Here they point out that Israel only was ever to have one high priest. And yet, when you read in the Gospel accounts, there are two, Caiaphas and Annas, his father-in-law. They point to this as some incongruity with Scripture and a reason why we shouldn't believe it. But the only thing it really proves is that they have no idea what it is they're talking about and have never studied Scripture in their lives. Caiaphas was the high priest. And yes, there were two high priests at this time, but not according to the Jewish law. According to the law, the high priest was a position held until death. However, the Roman governor who had preceded Pilate forced the high priest Annas to step down and replaced him with his son-in-law Caiaphas. So even though Caiaphas had the title high priest, Annas was still recognized as high priest by the temple authorities and the people and the law of Moses. And so one had the backing of the temple, the other had the backing of Rome, and even though it was a violation of the Mosaic system, even though it was a violation of the way God told them to organize themselves, no one who should have cared seemed to care at all. The arrangement apparently worked out well enough 
Caiaphas and Annas were on good terms, and even though it was a violation of the law, it was a pragmatic one. It worked well enough, and so no fuss was raised. It's just one more example of the corruption that had seized the Jewish religion at this time. And so there seated Caiaphas, the high priest in name, along with the other chief priests of Israel and the leaders. And the reason they've gathered together is to plot the destruction of the Lord Jesus. They want to arrest Him and kill Him and be rid of Him once and for It's hard to imagine. Can you imagine all of the, all of the leaders? This would be like today if you had heard on the wind of uh, all of the famous pastors and preachers that you know and they got together to plot to murder somebody. This isn't the, the mafia, folks. These are the religious leaders of the day. You see how degraded things have become. Here in these verses, there are four things I'd like you to see. Four points to take note of. One, the sovereignty of God to fulfill His decree. Two, Christ as our Passover lamb. Three, He was a voluntary sacrifice for us. And four, the dangers of the fear of man. First is the sovereignty of God. And what I mean by His sovereignty is His authority, His right, and His power to do whatsoever He wills, whenever He wants, regardless of the wills and wants, decisions, or plans of anything in creation, including all mankind. And this is obvious here in this passage. Notice the contrast between the words of Jesus in verse 2 and His enemies' adamant decision in verse 5. There's a disagreement between the Lord and the religious leaders here. Did you notice that? Did you notice that when we read this passage, there's, there's a, a conflict happening? Jesus says, the festival is coming, and in two days, during the festival, I will be killed. The leaders, they affirm that they intend to kill Him, but they are adamant they will not do so during the festival. So Jesus says, they're going to kill me during the festival. They say, no way, not during the festival. We're waiting until it's over. We're not going to take that risk, and we'll get them then. It's almost like they're speaking to one another, isn't it? It's a conflict of will here. Jesus says they're going to do something. They say they're not going to do something. But whose will is going to win? Well, there's no contest. God's will always wins. And you see this, by the way, all throughout Scripture. Consider Daniel 4.35, for example. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does, speaking of God, He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So among the angels and demons and among all mankind, He does His will and no one can say to him, or stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done? Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know, sometimes you make plans for your life. I think everybody makes plans for their life. But you know ultimately whose plan your life, your life is going to follow? It's going to follow God's 100% of the time. And you know this. I mean, how many of you are doing exactly what you planned to do? Right? You're living where you thought you would be living. You're doing what you thought you would be doing. Everything in your life went according to plan from day one till now. It happens sometimes, but it is very rare. Our plans change unexpectedly. Things come up that lead us in different and various directions. One of the things you can understand and take hope in as Christians, all of those changes are according to God's will and plan. Or Isaiah 49, or 46, sorry, 9 and 10. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish 
all of my purposes. God says he, his, his purposes always come to pass. Sometimes when you think about prophecy, we think of it as God predicting the future. Right? That's how we think of it. When we read the prophecies that are fulfilled in Scripture, we read them and say, God is telling us what is going to happen however many years from now. That's not the way the Bible teaches us to think about Scripture. Certainly not in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, it says when God prophesies, when God predicts the future, He isn't so much saying what is going to happen as much as He is telling us what He has planned to bring to pass. There's a big difference between the two. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 tells us when the future happens, when God says, He is saying, I am declaring the end from the beginning. I am declaring my counsel and it will stand. This is even here in the Lord's death. You see this plainly. The religious leaders say, we won't kill him yet. No, not yet. God says, oh yes, you will. You think of the power and authority and wisdom and knowledge He has to, to override anything He wants. And nobody can say otherwise or raise a single complaint. This is similar to what we see the devil doing in Matthew, by the way. Did you know, when you read the, the Gospel according to Matthew, one of the things I think easily passed over but obvious in the text is that the devil did not want Jesus to go to the cross. Did you notice that the last time you read the book of Matthew? Think about it. In the wilderness, the whole time, all of those temptations, their goal was to get Jesus to forsake suffering, right? The very last words Jesus hears before He goes into the wilderness, God speaking from heaven, You are My Son in whom I am well pleased. You know what the first thing the devil says to Him is? If you are the Son of God... He cast doubt on the very proclamation God the Father had just given to the Son. If you are the Son of God, turn these, turn these stones into bread. Why? Because no Son of God should be suffering out here in the wilderness like you're suffering. No Son of God should be hungry like this. That's not how God treats His children. You don't need to suffer. The next temptation, the angels... He says, throw yourself off at the temple. The angels will come and catch you. And then Satan quotes Scripture to him. He says, God will send His angels so that you won't stub your foot even against a rock. You know what the devil is doing there? He is sowing the seeds of doubt in the mind of Christ, trying to. He's saying, God says, the Bible says that the, the Son of God, the Messiah, He's not going to suffer. You put it to the test. And Satan is trying to show Jesus, convince him that if you suffer, the one thing you can be sure of is you're not the Messiah because the Bible says the angels are going to hold you up. Satan, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout sorry, the Gospels, is trying to convince Jesus to forsake suffering. You see this when he confronts Peter, don't you? You remember? Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. No way. And how does Jesus answer when Peter tries to convince him not to go to the cross? Get behind me, Satan. He recognizes the voice of the devil when he hears it. And even when he's on the cross, do you remember some of the enticements the crowds are throwing at him? If you are the Son of God, the same words you hear in Matthew 4 in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, come down off of that cross. Save yourself. Those are the devil's words. And you see in this passage, in spite of his best efforts, he could not stop the plan of God to crush him and plunder his house. God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the greatest trials in your lives. He's sovereign over the greatest trial in Jesus' life. And we must never forget that. I mean, the song we, we sang, whatever God ordains is right. God rules over every trial, including Christ's. According to these verses, testify that the eternal plan of God was for Jesus to go 
during Passover and be crucified to redeem his people. You know one of the things this means? It means that Jesus isn't going to the cross because of the hatred of his enemies. Octavius Winslow, he puts it like this. He says, who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. And if you know one verse, it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. The reason Christ was sent was because the Father loves His people. And He did it to redeem you. The second point. Christ is our Passover Lamb. That's why He came, to be the Passover Lamb. This is the festival that's about to take place. Passover. If you, if you don't remember... It's a festival to remember, to celebrate the deliverance that God worked among His people in Egypt to bring them out of bondage. It had been, they, they had been slaves for 400 years, roughly, and God raised up Moses to deliver them out of that lethal oppression. God sent plague after plague against Pharaoh. He brought Egypt to ruins, but still Pharaoh resisted, and he would not let the people go. After nine plagues, he sends the last, the tenth. An angel of death would sweep through the land and kill every firstborn son. I want you to think about that for a moment. Your father, is he the firstborn in your family? Now what about you? What about your son or your grandchild? How many firstborn sons are there in your family? And what would it be like to lose them all in one night? I want you to understand just how devastating this would have been to the people in Egypt. We're told that in all of Egypt, there was not a single home, not one, without someone dead. And it wasn't like that in Israel. God had given a sign to the Israelites by which they would be passed over. They were to take a lamb from the flock, a lamb spotless and without blemish, and bring it into their home and slaughter it. The lamb itself would be roasted and eaten, but the blood would be collected in a bowl, and then it would be painted on the top of the door and down both of the doorposts. And when the angel of death swept through the land and came through with his gruesome task, he would see the blood on the door, and when he saw the blood, he would pass over that house, hence the name of the festival, Passover. Death would not enter in because this family was covered by the blood of the Lamb. They were saved from this terrible plague of death. This great deliverance was celebrated year after year after year by the Jews, and it's about to be celebrated by Jesus and His disciples, but it isn't only going to be celebrated. Here, It's going to be fulfilled. And death is going to pass over God's people once and for all. But how? How? Most of us who have grown up in the church, we kind of know the answer to that question. Right? If I were to ask, why did Jesus die? Or why did Jesus have to die? we would probably all answer, He died for our sins. What does that mean? I remember once, and I'll never forget, I was helping out with the youth group while I was in university, and uh, we had the opportunity, I had an opportunity to speak with two of the godliest kids in that youth group about the gospel. And I asked them the same question. I asked them, why did Jesus die? And of course, Uh, they answered exactly like you probably would answer. He died for our sins. Well, I wanted to know if they understood what they were saying, so then I asked them this. And how does His death on the cross forgive us of our sins? They were both speechless. 
They had a, a puzzled look on their face. They, they were thinking. And listen, they, they were Christian kids. They, were, uh, they, they loved the Lord. They still do to this day. They were in a good Bible-believing and teaching church. But when it came to the question, how does Jesus' death save you? They had no idea. Now, they believed it to be sure, but they couldn't explain it at all. And that's what they answered. We don't know. And so I explained to them the substitutionary death of Christ. That He bore our sins and our curse and our death and our shame and our, our guilt and how God took it off of us and put it on Him so that we might take His righteousness upon ourselves by faith. I explained this to them. They were in tears. They couldn't comprehend it. Their, their Christian life on that evening took a hundred steps forward in one conversation when they realized what it meant that Christ died for them. And I bring this up because it's possible to grow up in the church and know much about the Bible and even to believe and yet have a very small view of the basics of the cross of Christ. We know little of the thing Paul preached. Nothing but. It's what motivates a Christian life. It, it increases love for God and it leads to victory over sin. It sanctifies and it strengthens and you will never get beyond your need of the Gospel. So listen, if you can't answer the question, how is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Pay attention. Because this is at the heart of the Gospel. It's at the center of the cross. And it's the heart of Christianity itself. Jesus died because His death is the only way any sinner can ever be forgiven by God and not killed and cast into hell. The Bible is clear over and over again. The soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. And nobody is without sin. Nobody. Your conscience condemns you. Your conscience tells you, I'm not perfect. When it does that, it says, I'm not perfect to you. When you give that, ad, uh, that, that, uh, that announcement about yourself and recognize that you're not perfect, you know what you're saying? I have failed in some area. Now, you don't have the police coming after you, right? You're not always looking over your shoulder uh, in fear of being arrested because you know you haven't broken any of the laws of men. So why does your conscience forbid you from saying, I am perfect? It's because you know you have broken the laws of God. Romans chapter 2. Nobody is without sin. The only possible thing that a good and a just God can do with a lawless people like you and I is to kill us forever. That's what we deserve because of our sins. And God is holy. And because He is perfectly holy, He must punish sin. In the same way you burn with anger, and you do when you see sin out in the world, you hear about horrible things happening to people, you get angry, don't you? You, you may have even said to yourself, if it was within my power to put an end to this, I would stop it. I would wipe those people out. And if you can feel that way as a sinful human being, seeing a very limited amount of sin in the world, how must it be for God who is perfect and sees all of the sin in the world down to the thoughts of, of, of individual people? God demands justice and He will demand justice for every sin ever committed in this world, including yours. So there's a great problem, isn't there? Two things in Scripture in, in conflict with one another. God's willingness and readiness to save His people. But because He is just, He cannot simply overlook their sin or sweep it aside as if it never happened. Sometimes when we think of the cross of Christ, we think of, of, of God. When we think of Him forgiving us, we think of it as God sweeping the sin under the rug. That's not what He does. Because that wouldn't be just. And in the same way, a good judge must deal with the sin of the guilty. God must deal with the sinner. Proverbs 17.5 puts the dilemma clearly. He who justifies the wicked. 
and he who condemns the righteous, both alike are an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the sinner and who condemns the innocent, both alike are an abomination to God. And yet we rejoice. Why? Because we, who are sinners, have been justified. So how can God... That's the question. How can God forgive us? How can God forgive a sinner without becoming an abomination unto Himself? That's the great crisis of the Gospel. How can God remain holy, maintain His justice, while at the same time forgiving an unholy and unjust people? Well, the answer, planned out from before the foundation of the world, is the cross of Christ. Romans 3.23-26 puts it plainly. It says, For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying? In the past, God overlooked sin, but you can't overlook sin and be righteous. You have to deal with sin or you will be unrighteous. The death of Christ showed that God was righteous even though He had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The cross is how God can justify the wicked and not become an abomination to Himself. He put Christ forward as our substitute. And the sword of guilt and damnation that hung over your head was driven into His heart. And He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And because our sin was paid for by another, when God looks at you, He sees a person whose debt of sin has been paid and paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ, His beloved Son. And because it has been paid, there is no more reckoning. He's not going to demand a second installment. When Jesus said, it is finished, He wasn't lying. Every sin you've ever committed, every angry or adulterous thought, every grumble of discontentment, every moment of envy, every idle word or mumble under your breath, or every wicked thought that surprised even you when it climbed out of the cesspit of your soul. All of it, all of it was taken off of you and laid on Him. And He was cursed and cut off, cut off from life, from blessing, cut off from hope of deliverance. You realize that? When Christ was on the cross, it was dark. When He prayed, when you think that God has sometimes forsaken you, you are mistaken. Because He has promised to never forsake you. The reason you can have that assurance is because when Christ was on the cross, He really was forsaken. So that you never would be. He was cut off from hope of deliverance, cut off from His Father, cut off from everything good and holy, and subjected to the full weight of the wrath of God against sin. When you think about it, imagine all of the sin. Your sin, just yours, all of it. Thoughts, words, deeds, omissions, cruelties to others, losses of control, neglect of what is good, all of the sin that you had before you came to Christ, all of the sin that you've committed after you've come to Him, the most shameful things you've ever done, and the sins so inconsequential you've never even thought of them. Imagine you could take them all and weave them into a tapestry. What that would look like. Listen. That is what Christ saw in you when He determined to save you. 
It is. He didn't see a great person who was marred. Or he didn't see a good person who makes mistakes. He didn't even see someone in need of or deserving of love. He saw a sinner wrapped in a cloak of depravity and any redeeming quality that you could possibly have had was shadowed in the mountain of your sin and swallowed by the sea of your corruption. That's how Christ saw you. You say, I don't like that. It's true. And seeing you like this, He loved you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He came, and that blanket of sin soiled and spoiled, He came and He took it off of you, and setting His love and affection and compassion upon you. Why? Not because you wrenched it out of Him, not because you earned it, but because He is loving and affectionate and compassionate and gives it without measure, He promised you all of this sin and shame. Now it belongs to Me. And all of My righteousness and My peace I give to you. Trouble yourself with your sin no more because you have become like Me in the sight of a heavenly Father who loves you and gave Me for you. Why would He do this? Who forced Christ to go to the cross? Why would He set His affection on such a sinner like you and like me? Nobody made Him do it. One of the things obvious in this passage is He endured these things willingly and voluntarily. He was the voluntary sacrifice. Voluntary because he loved his people. And so, he set the trap, walked into the trap, and sprung it. And he did it out of love for his people and joy in their redemption. I want you to understand, that the cross, it's not just some abstract event that happened thousands of years ago. It really did happen. The reason that you can say, praise be to God, the reason you can say, thank you, Jesus, is because Jesus really did die. He really was betrayed and His Father shrouded Him in darkness and turned against Him and struck Him like Abraham and Isaac. But the knife came down over and over again. And not only did He endure this, He embraced it for His people. The book of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and despised its shame. For the joy, what joy? The joy of fulfilling the promises of God. The joy of reconciling a people to Himself. He embraced it, knowing how fickle or forgetful or unappreciative you can be. He did it for Peter and the ten others, even though he knew they would abandon him in a few short hours, the time of his greatest need would come and they were gone. He did it for Paul, even though he knew that Paul would hunt down believers and have them thrown into prison and put to death. He did it for the thief on the cross who would mock him and yet in the final moments of his life repent and believe. He died for him. He didn't die for a people who were perfect by his own account. He came for sinners and the unrighteous. What could possibly possess our Lord to do such a degrading thing if He did not love His people more than His own life and more than His own dignity and more than His own honor? More than any amount of suffering He would endure. He loved His people and He loved us to the end. You know, sometimes we say... You know, I just, I just want someone to love me. Listen, if you're a Christian, you cannot be loved better than you are. And it's not, it's not superficial. He knows you. Christ knows you more than you know you. And if most people knew you that well, they wouldn't love you at all. If people knew you completely, your thoughts, words, 
deeds, what's done in secret, what creeps into your mind. If, if other people knew that, you wouldn't have two friends in the whole country. The reason I say you wouldn't have two is because you would have one who promised to never leave you nor forsake you and gave Himself for you to seal it and make it sure. Christ went to the cross for you knowing full well how sinful and fickle and cold and weak and disappointing you are. And he wasn't deterred by any of it. You, you don't surprise Him with your sin. The love of God for us in Christ is truly beyond compare and comprehension. Nobody loves like this. Nobody. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he, he said of this, the giving of Christ, it would be blasphemous to say that God loves us more than Christ. But He certainly does not love us any less. He cannot love us better than He does. In light of His goodness, and in light of His great-heartedness, in light of His love, the hard-hearted evil of the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the elders is multiplied. Listen, it's one thing to put to death a criminal. It's another to put to death someone who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. When a good man dies, by man's standards, it's tragic. And when an innocent man is wrongly sentenced to death, it's worse still. But what is worse than putting to death not only an innocent man, but a man full of benevolence and kindness and healing and forgiveness, forgiving even those who dragged him away to be crucified. What you read in verse 3, 4, and 5 is the height of human depravity. They're seeking to kill the Son of God. And though God has ordained it to come to pass, these wicked men are by no means innocent of their evil schemes. There's one point here. One point I'd like to focus in on again. Verse 5. If you didn't know better and you read this, you might think a pang of conscience struck them. Oh, they resolved to kill him, to be sure, but not during the feast. Well, why not? Had they a sudden concern for righteousness? A stab of guilt? Right? Well, if we're going to kill a prophet, at least let's not do it during Passover. Wait until after the holy day and then we'll do it. Would that mitigate their guilt? I was wrong to kill a man, but it's even worse to kill him in his own house. It's one thing to be an arsonist. It's something else entirely to burn down a church that's striking out directly at God. And, and some people may even think twice about giving in to temptation because it's a Sunday. Well, you see these chief priests and elders. Why are we going to kill him on the festival? Well, there was no threat of conscience that delayed them. Fear of man is what restrained them. They didn't want to kill him during the festival because they were afraid of the crowds. Fear of man is what held their hands back from murder. It would be overruled, as we saw and will see by the hand of God, if they would do, they, they, they would do His will according to His plan, even though they conspired differently. But as it was, they were afraid of what the people would do. And this fear of the crowds had a restraining effect on the evil they would commit. And I want you to see here a strong warning. You see, if you had been there during the feast, and you had seen these religious leaders in action, and you had no knowledge of their secret murderous counsels, and you'd only ever seen their shows of piety out in public, heard their prayers, heard them preach, you might be tempted to think that they were truly upright men of holy character. You might think that if you didn't know their secret counsels. This demands we take pause and ask ourselves, how often is this the case with us? 
where the fear of man can be mistaken for the fear of God, even in our own lives by ourselves. How often, you say, what are you talking about, Corey? Ask yourself, how often do you restrain yourself, right? You restrain a sinful impulse or a sinful word, not because the Lord forbids it, but out of the fear of what others will think of you. How much of your holiness is actually based on the fear of men and not love for God? This is a, a dreadful hypocrisy that can deceive the soul. Uh, it's, 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 it's holiness that, that's motivated by the fear of men, and if it's motivated by the fear of man, it's no holiness at all. It's a veneer, it's a, it's a thin strip of mahogany on a rotting plank. It's a whitewashed tomb. It leads to death and a miserable death at that. And it is to be fought against and repented of at the slightest provocation. So ask yourself honestly, how much of your righteousness is motivated by the fear of what other people will think? I mean, you go to church, serve, you pray, read for public show. Do you do that? Or what about your character? Are you a different kind of person in the workplace than you are at home? Different kind of person at church than you are somewhere else? Different kind of person in the evening as you are in the morning? When you're out and around, you put on a show of joy and peace and patience and kindness and love and the show disappears because it's just a show and you walk through your front door. You know, the reason I point this out, sometimes you, you, maybe you've been here for a while and you think, why is he always talking about the family and about work? I'm talking about family and work because that's where 99% of your Christianity is going to be played out. It's not going to be played out here in the hour and a half you're here on Sunday morning. It's going to happen in the evenings, in the workplace, on the weekends. That's where you live. That's where you see whether or not you're a Christian. What's happening here on Sunday morning doesn't mean much. If the other 167 hours of the week, nobody could mistake you for a Christian. So think about in the home. Talking about fear of men, think about in the home. All of your blots and blemishes, people know them. Right? They know your character because they know you. You've got nothing to hide. Right? You've got nothing to lose before your wife and your kids. And then what you would restrain in public, because there's nothing to lose, no reputation to suffer, you give full vent to those things in the home. And those people that you are called to love the most, you love the least. Listen, it's easy to do. Our sins hound us like a, like a beast that's never satisfied. But this is a dreadful sin to be repented of. And, and if you're guilty of it, you must make things right. And by the strength of the Lord that comes through prayer, you must strive to put the sin of duplicity to death. Don't, don't, don't be in the home what you are not in public places. Do not be in the church what you are not in the workplace. Do not be in private what you are not in public, and do not be outwardly what you are not inwardly. Don't allow your righteousness to be motivated by the fear of men. The moment that happens, listen, the moment that happens, it stops being righteousness and starts being idolatry. Because if left, un and if left unchecked, the, the reason it becomes idolatry is because you're not living a holy life out of the fear of God. You're living a holy life because you're worried about what other people will think of you. Who's the God in that case? Who's the motivation for the holy living? You are. Who's the motivation for restraining your tongue and avoiding temptation? You are. There's a night and day difference between righteous living for the, based on the fear of men and righteous living based on the fear of God. And if you leave it unchecked and it goes on and on, it will harden your heart and it will callous your soul until you don't even recognize you're doing it anymore. And you'll become like these chief priests, champions of hypocrisy, who justify uh, their own evil actions and call good evil and evil good. 
I'm convinced. You, you read this. The Pharisees and the elders and the leaders, they had reached a point where they thought, genuinely thought, that what they were doing was something noble and good. And that's where the path called fear of men and love of praise leads. It's where it always leads. And you would do well to avoid anything that resembles it and resolve today that you are not going to fear men anymore, but fear God and Him alone. One is to embrace Him and His Gospel, and the other is to reject Him. And there are only two options. There's no middle ground. So if you're afraid of men, stop being afraid of men. You want to be afraid of someone, be afraid of the Lord God. And if you love the Lord, resolve to love Him more. And if you don't know Him, resolve to know Him at once. Don't let the weight of your sin hinder you when He would so gladly relieve you of your burden. Even the great and unbearable burden, the soul-crushing and callousing burden of the fear of men. All of these sins and many more He delights to forgive if only you would repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord, this is the day that You have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I pray, God, that You would help us to rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ in the giving of Your Son. I pray that You would help everybody in this room, Lord, to overcome the fear of men. Help all of those listening to overcome the fear of men. That it would have no longer any sway over them, but their lives would be motivated in every way by fear of You. Fear of men leads to callousness and distortion of the soul. Fear of You, O Lord, leads to life and liberty and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness. O Lord, I pray that we would all be resolved to put hypocrisy to death. That we would be people of integrity in the home, in the workplace, in church, in public, in private, wherever we are, we would not be divided but whole. We would be a people of integrity before you. Strengthen your people. Lord, let your love motivate us and help us, Lord. Thank you for the grace that you have given, grace that teaches us to say no to sin and to strive after Christ in all godliness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen.